Value Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Welcome to a new series where we come up close and personal uh, to some of the great leaders of the financial services industry in our region and around the world. It gives me great pleasure to this evening to have a very personal conversation with Samuel Sen, uh, currently the chief executive uh, and board member of OCBC Bank in Singapore. And uh, we want to shape a conversation that focuses a lot on Samuel, the man, as opposed to OCBC, the bank. Today, we have a very special opportunity to understand Samuel Sen, the man. I've been very privileged in my own uh, professional experience in building the Asian banker, in building uh, a new program called Wealth and Society uh, around the Asia Pacific into Africa, the Middle East, uh, and, and now Eastern Europe, uh, in, in being able to become good friends uh, with a number of key professionals who in their careers have had the opportunity to make that leap from being a professional and then to becoming a manager. And then that, that one leap that is not open to everybody to becoming a chief executive. And around the region, there are a few people uh, whose own careers have sort of been parallel with, my, with mine and I've been able to see them up close and personal. In fact, uh, the first time I, I came to know Samuel Sen, the man uh, was in, Hong Kong when he was the uh, chief executive of Bank of America in Hong Kong. And I still remember the day when he invited me into his bank branch and uh, was very delighted to share with me, uh, you know, the uh, digital banking initiative that they had uh, just embarked on. So join me all uh, to invite and welcome Samuel Sen. Well, thank you, Emmanuel. If I may uh, start off by thanking you for arranging this last opportunity in my current capacity as the Group C of OCBC Bank to connect with the participants at this webinar, but also to be able to connect with my peers, my respected peers, my friends and my colleagues uh, in the industry. And uh, I think that many people know that I'm not one to uh, you know, be very complimentary uh, without a cause. Um, and I'll say this, that it comes with uh, great rigor in, in, uh, in assessing you, in assessing your peers, and assessing leadership in general, uh, that one of the things that stands out about you is your great consistency. I started this session by uh, saying that it has been my personal pleasure, pleasure to have seen uh, people make this shift from being managers to becoming chief executives. And you are one such person. Um, and you moved to Singapore in 2008. Was that around the yeah. time uh, yeah. that you made that decision to move to Singapore? And then you were senior manager uh, at OCBC. Um, were you already told that it was a track to becoming CEO eventually? Uh, was there a preparatory pe period? Or was it just, uh, you know, um, a jump into the wild uh, and, and a journey? Uh, and at which point uh, did that opportunity to become chief executive of a bank uh, open up to you? Uh, talk us through that experience. Well, first of all, thank you very much for your kind words at the beginning of this session uh, about how I'm perceived. Um, I don't perceive myself um, uh, very well, but from the input from the other people, I help to understand myself better. Um, I joined OCBC Bank from Hong Kong as uh, the senior executive vice president in charge of global corporate banking. It is a major division. Um, when I joined the bank, I was trying to do a good job in the global corporate banking. Uh, I know OCBC Bank from the outside. I know it's got very diversified businesses in insurance as well as in banking, and it's got multiple presences in different countries. When I joined, I have an aspiration, but there is no guarantee, no uh, sort of verbal commitment at all that I will be able to end up as the group CEO of OCPC Bank. But I try to do as good a job as possible, utilizing my knowledge that I've accumulated from my previous assignments and try to help the bank grow in that respect. So I'm very pleased that after four years, uh, I was chosen to be the group CEO. Um, I'm very 
proud of that. But on the other hand, when I first joined the bank, I was only joining the bank as one of the senior executives of OCBC Bank. What about you do you think made that difference? I think within OCBC, there are a number of people uh, who would have um, qualified uh, just as you were. Um, and there were different aspects to the bank. The bank had a strong small SME business, had a strong middle market business, had a strong retail business. Um, what about you made that difference, you think? I think it came from a background where I have been uh, with a fairly large bank, Bank of America, and I have been the chief executive officer of the Bank of America Asia, um, covering consumer banking and commercial banking. Um, and subsequent to that for six months as the chief executive officer for uh, China Construction Bank Asia. That experience is quite important because as a chief executive officer, you basically have to pull everything together. Your functional knowledge about a particular area is less important than your ability to integrate the knowledge and then decide what is best for the bank. I think that helps me to be able to roll into the job that subsequently um, I was very pleased to be appointed. And secondly, I think my exposure uh, in the northern part of Asia, particularly in Hong Kong, my knowledge about China and my previous assignment in San Francisco with Bank of America all helped to groom myself to have a broader view of things um, from a business perspective, from a cultural perspective, from an engagement of people perspective. So I think that has uh, helped me to be able to rise into the CEO job uh, perhaps better. And maybe these points were also valued by the board when they made that selection. Did the time that, uh, from the time that you were appointed chief executive in 2012 to today, did any of those elements, uh, you know, uh, show up uh, in a big difference between 2012 and 2020? Did China become more important to OCBC as a percentage of income, for example? Yes, very much so. As a matter of fact, when I joined the bank in 2007, the contribution from Greater China, which is not only China, but Greater China, uh, was grouped under Asia Pacific because it is so small that it cannot stand out as a major contributing area. And at that time, the contribution is around 2% or so. Um, after I took over the, the global corporate banking job, I was looking at how we can expand our presence in Greater China. And then after I assumed the CEO position, my first uh, board strategy session was to talk about a diversification that I think is very much required by the bank because our concentration of earnings was in Southeast Asia, Singapore, Malaysia, and we were building Indonesia at that time. And I sort of pointed out, there are two factors that we should take into account. One is that the concentration of Singapore, Malaysia, perhaps is too much. It was as high as 95% of our earnings. And Singapore and Malaysia are closely related. So from an economic perspective, um, any impacts that impacted one country is likely to impact the other country as well. Then the other area that I pointed out is that it is likely that China with its anticipated growth is going to be a very important contributor of economic activities for itself, for the Southeast Asia region, as well as for Asia. And therefore it is very important for us to gradually move uh, into a greater China uh, with a good presence. Um, if there's an opportunity for us to do an inorganic expansion, um, I will recommend to the board to do that. Mm -hmm. And of course, that opportunity came in 2014 when we had uh, a chance to look at Winghang Bank, which is a very well-run bank uh, formed many years ago. And um, it is a time where the Fung family decided that maybe they should look for additional uh, partners to come in to take it over. So I know the Winghang Bank family well, so we had a conversation. It was a very cordial conversation, and after that, we acquired the bank. So after we acquired the bank, we used that bank as a base to expand into multiple areas in greater um, China. Uh, that includes corporate banking, consumer banking, our treasury business, our private banking business. Not all of these businesses are directly booked under the Winghang Bank we purchased, but it certainly benefits all of the network countries and the network businesses that we have. So as of the end of last year, for, for, the, for last year, 2020, um, in our announcement, the contribution from the Greater China region reached 
Now, last year, Greater China region's contribution was significantly higher because prior year it was 20%. But 20% as compared with the 2% when I joined the bank is a significant increase. From 20% to 32% was a little bit of an anomaly because, because um, last year, um, I think from an allowance perspective, we were harder hit in Southeast Asia than in North Asia. So that contributed the further importance of Greater China to the OCBC franchise. So last year, it was actually 31% of our profit before tax was contributed by Greater China. That's very good to, uh, to hear because uh, Greater China is not necessarily um, a profitable play for all players. Um, was, uh, was your personal contribution, did you spend a lot of time um, you know, building the goodwill, building the franchise in Greater China? Uh, or did you were you able to find the right people to do that? You know what 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 contributed to the ability to you know be profitable, um, and also this uh, integration uh, with the uh, with with the um, with, with the purchase of uh, Winghan Bank, which is uh, it, you know M and A's are not easy, uh, especially when a bank is not necessarily the largest bank in the country. You end up purchasing the bank and then discovering lots of things that you need to have uh, corrected and stuff like that. Um, what was that experience like? Maybe I'll talk about the uh, integration first and I'll talk about what did we do in Greater China that contributed to the higher level of earnings. On the integration side, it is very important, as you said, to make sure that the integration is smooth because you acquire somebody for something that you do not have. And that's something that you do not have is created by the people and created by the original franchise. You should not impose upon what you have and then impose upon the duly acquired entity. It is most important for us to first of all, understand before the due diligence and during the due diligence, what is it they have that you do not have. Then after the acquisition, you really need to make an extremely sincere effort to make sure that you protect what they have. And I think we are quite successful in that. You must have the sincere respect of the people, of the way that they have been handling the customers, of their products, of their services, of their customer franchise. So that one is very important. And then after that, you try to get what they have into your franchise, and then you try to share what you have with their franchise. That integration is extremely um, critical for a successful integration. Now, in that respect, I have some experience, which I think helped me um, because when I was in uh, with Bank of America in the US, um, up to 1992, I was uh, called back to Hong Kong because of the acquisition of Security Pacific Bank by Bank of America. And at that time, as some of our peers may recall, Security Pacific Bank has got a fairly important franchise in Asia. And um, when I was called back to Hong Kong, we were covering that Asian franchise. Uh, together with a expatriate um, from uh, the US who joined me in working on this effort. And that effort was very successfully uh, carried out. So it's my first experience that you know how to integrate the bank into, uh, into the uh, larger family that we already have. Um, I also have a subsequent experience, which is on the reverse side, which is we, we, I led the sale of um, um, uh, Bank of America's Asia franchise to China Construction Bank from an operational basis. I did not negotiate the price from an operational basis. And I will see that when you want to sell, you will be make sure that you understand what is you were good at, what is that you can utilize the new buyer and how can you integrate together. So I was fortunate to have experience on both sides. And when we acquired Wenghang Bank and we subsequently did two other acquisitions, Barclays and the NAPS Wealth Management Portfolio in Asia. I think these experiences help. First of all, you really have to appreciate what the acquired entity has and you make every effort to preserve it. Otherwise, the price that you paid would not be able to be realized in your future, um, uh, in your future uh, earning stream. And then secondly, you must understand what you have and then you integrate that. That's very important. With respect to your earlier question about um, what is it that I did in the Greater China to increase the earnings proportion to 31% of last year, I, I would not absolutely not attribute it to myself. I would absolutely attribute it to the team that we have because there are so many facets of the operation that we really need to make it work in order to generate the additional earnings. 
And you have to understand yourself and your weaknesses. For example, in China, we are very clear that we won't be able to compete head on with the Chinese banks because they have the franchise, they have the name recognition, they have the connection, all of which, however hard you do, you will not be able to achieve that. So we focus on what is the flow business that we will be able to capture. Once they're outside of China, our competitive ability becomes much stronger. And as a result of that, I'll be able to compete with the Chinese banks outside of China better than if I were to able to do it inside China. So we know their strength, we know our weaknesses, and then I have to convert what we have of which they do not have. So that's a very important area. Then the other area is we built a, a very good business uh, in wealth management, both on the banking side and under a private banking arm, Bank of Singapore, which has an office in uh, Hong Kong. And the team did very well because the SME base is actually very rich based, but because not, they are not as highly visible, uh, they are typically not called upon by the major private bankers. We understand that this is a hidden treasure in our portfolio. And we introduced our private banking product services research into that base, and it was very well received. So we are able to create that synergy value, which originally was not in the Winghang Bank in terms of product offering, but was in the Winghang Bank franchise, but it was not unearthed, it was not earthed out. Other private banks also did not know who they are because they are not visible. So we, 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 we try to look at the capabilities, look at what is in it, and then we really build it up as a business. You know, what you have to say about franchise building is perhaps more than all of the technology innovations that are coming into uh, financial services today, it is the single most powerful and important uh, role of a chief executive or a protector of a franchise. Now, let me apply what you just said the other way around. You then became chief executive of an existing franchise in Singapore uh, and a very powerful franchise, a franchise with, has, which has a history uh, and a you know, amazing legacy uh, customer base. Uh, and sometimes an existing franchise can be its own worst enemy. So when someone like you, an outsider comes into the situation, uh, you do find that you need to um, work on that franchise and, and, uh, and, and release the energy that is in it. And some would say that uh, OCBC uh, had that uh, problem uh, in fact, as you know, uh, you know the Asian banker. We we uh, we monitor um, the competition of uh, all of the key franchise um, competition in in all of the different countries. And in Singapore, what's interesting is it is a fierce competition between the three banks: uh, OCBC, DBS, and and uh, UOB. There are moments that you lose uh, market share, um, and and sometimes you win market share. So from the time that you were CEO, if we just looked at the deposit market share, you were 27% in 2012 and uh, 28% today, right? Um, that's very good. Uh, I mean, that's a small gain, but, but you know, you're pushing the mar margin a little bit or the, the envelope a little bit. Uh, for housing loan, 29% and now 31%. Um, speak to us about uh, dealing with a... Uh, legacy franchise in Singapore. What what was good about it that you needed to hold, and what was what needed to be worked on, uh, and about that franchise in a highly competitive environment. We do not focus on the product sales per se. Product sales is the result of uh, a relationship building. So um, on the consumer side, because both the customer deposits and the housing loan seems to skew towards the consumer side. On the consumer side, our leaders in consumer banking actually look at the way that we can build a total relationship uh, with the customer. So we were through the deposit relationship, very successful to build into a wealth uh, relationship, uh, into an advisory relationship and into a relationship where they will be able to upgrade themselves in terms of what they require from the bank of which they may not even realize before we engage them. We call it life goals. Life goals is something that we implant into the customer's mind saying that your requirement is beyond what you currently have. You really need to think through as to what is it that you may require and we will lead you through that. And with that, 
we are the financial advisor and the solution provider so that you'll be able to achieve those goals as you move along. As we dissect the market and as we dissect, we actually look at the life of a consumer. So at the very young age, um, we will start to bank with them and um, we work with the, with the uh, government to um, have a, which the government have a scheme where there is some subsidy that will be given to the child when it was born. So we have a 60% market share in that particular area. And then we gradually groom them into uh, when you're at school, what do you need? So we have a frank product that attracts them. And then we move on to um, another product that they were first uh, going to the workforce. We will find uh, opportunities to bank with them. Then the first loan, and as you accumulate some money, we'll move on the wealth management side. So we look at it fairly holistically in terms of what the people require, plus the fact that we have this life goal concept in our mind that will lead you to believe you understand what you need and we were able to provide for what you have. So we have been doing it in a fairly systemic manner. And as a result of that, we'll be able to establish the total relationship with the customer rather than a product relationship with the customer. So we'll be doing that yeah. quite well. This also applies to our SME sector. Um, we are able to bank with the SMEs before they were incorporated. How do we do that? Because we know they have applied and then we will then make sure all of the documents are already ready. So on day one of the operation, day one, the account is already opened. So that's a very powerful, but it's a very meaningful way of making sure that we'll be able to service the customer in a total manner rather than on a specific sales manner. We do it on a proactive basis rather than responding to a customer's uh, request. So this is what we have been doing. You know, Sam, uh, as a holistic uh, relationship-centric institution, I think OCBC stands out very well. And not only that, you also have um, your insurance and your um, you know, asset management and, and, uh, yes. and private banking business uh, all integrated. Um, but when, you, when we look at uh, your share price, you've always been seen as a laggard uh, to the other two banks. Um, in fact, the good thing that can be said from this chart um, is that uh, at least OCBCs, you know, uh, it, uh, the share price operates within a range, uh, whereas the other two uh, tend to, um, you know, uh, be a little bit more volatile. Whether vol volatility is good or bad is not, um, you know, not, um, it's, up, it's, a, it's a point for debate. Um, did you ever feel uh, that you were being measured that uh, that there was a, there was a expectation set on you. There was a competitive element uh, to explain uh, OCBC share price uh, as against, against the, franchise the franchise that you're building, uh, and uh, you know, and and the integrated way in which you are building a sustainable franchise. Uh, did you, when you look at a chart like this, uh, did you feel uh, being judged or being um, you know being um, an expectation being put on you? Okay, uh, first of all, I think the, uh, the graph here shows the uh, share price per share. Um, it is better to look at the market cap, primarily because um, we have um, script dividends um, multiple times because we wanted to allow our shareholders to be able to participate in the continued growth of the company um, by taking their dividend in shares. So that increased our share outstanding quite a bit over the past few years. And your slide just now showed 2010 to uh, 2020, I guess. Uh, that was also a period of time of which we did the rights issue uh, of $3 billion to help the bank to acquire uh, Wingham, to fund the Wingham Bank's acquisition. So share price itself, by looking at per share, may not be entirely indicative of the growth that we were able to achieve for our shareholders. If you look at the market cap, I think it will be better. So if you look at the past one year, uh, our market cap increased by slightly over 40%. Um, so that indicates that the growth is really there um, and it's rewarded by the, by the, by the customers, by the shareholders. Um, the other point I would like to point out um, is I think our diversification is not yet fully appreciated by the investors market. The diversification of ourselves is very broad. We have three business pillars. We have commercial banking, we have wealth management as a separate pillar, and then we have insurance. 
Now, each of these um, business pillars will have its up and downs. For example, our insurance portfolio will be more subject to market impacts uh, than the other businesses. Um, we also have diversification into four countries, into Greater China, now very important for us, Singapore to the largest market, Malaysia and Indonesia. These diversifications really helped us in the crisis time, like we saw in 2020. If we had continued to be a Southeast Asian-centric bank, as we were 10 years ago, uh, this impact on OCBC would be much more than we are currently seeing. Because 2020, our uh, Greater China operation have not, were not impacted by the allowances that we saw in the Southeast Asia uh, region. So from that perspective, diversification really helped. And I think after we've announced the 2020 results, the market starts to realize this, that the diversification, although sometimes it offset the earnings and therefore you were not able to be as good as if you just concentrate on one pillar, but they realized that at times of toughness, as we saw last year, it really helped a bank to be in a very stable position in a very strong position. You're now the second largest bank in Singapore yes. um, and the diversification that you discussed. Uh, and, and I think that uh, that's a, um, you know, that's an interesting way to, to put that. But as I said, the, the, the judgment here is not on the bank, it's on you and the leadership that you're providing. Um, in fact, one of the things that I, uh, I thought whenever I interacted with you uh, is the way in which uh, by virtue of personality, uh, you uh, you are you don't exude this this uh, idea of being competitive. Uh, you know uh, you do come across as a franchise builder. Um, you know both internally and on, on the business front, uh, and I guess that has shown over time. And and what you explained about your share price and the growth on your total capital, uh, you know market cap, um, sort of uh, reflects on on that achievement that you've uh, that you've had on the bank. Um, you know in the time that you were there. Um, biggest regrets. What are the things that you wish that you were able to achieve? Uh, that you are, you know, that you are now leaving at a time when it's uh, work undone or work done wrongly. Mm -hmm. um, when I talk about the three business pillars, I was hoping that the three business pillars can actually be existent in all of the four key countries that we are in: Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, and uh, Greater China. Um, we are able to have the complete set of three strong business pillars powering in Singapore. And I can say the same thing for Malaysia. In the greater China market, we have wealth management and commercial banking. We don't have insurance yet. In Indonesia, we also are just building insurance and our private banking business has just started. I, I think if we really have a very well diversified um, operation, we should have all these three pillars existing in each of the major countries of which we're in. So we're still in the building, in the building phase. Um, some of these we can probably build quicker, our insurance operation, we can probably build quicker. We would like to see that uh, accelerate its, its path. So I, I think although the organization is very strong now in terms of diversification, we can be even stronger by making sure that we're able to build these pillars in those countries of which we have a strong presence. I would not look at it as a regret, but I would look at it as something that I would like to continue to see strengthening so that we can really present a balanced, diversified, and sustainable uh, business model for our shareholders. You know, if anyone else gave me that, sen that last sentence that you made, I would be on him by now. Uh, I would, you know, say that, no, I, I think that you're using that as, as an excuse for something else. But coming from you and, and having, you know, dug deep into the numbers and the franchise that you've built, um, I see that you're one person who means what you, what you actually have set out to achieve and you have. Um, something very interesting about you, which I did detect um, in, in the interactions I've had with you is, you do have a, a space in your own mind and your own time, of, uh, you know, the, the time allocation that you have uh, on uh, emerging uh, opportunities in Vietnam, in, in Myanmar. Um, how, does, how does emerging opportunities feature in your thinking? 
um, you know, and also maybe we can throw in fintech or, or uh, you know, technologies and 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 whatever other emerging opportunities that you uh, that you've identified for yourself. Uh, what are they? Uh, how much of your time do you spend on them? Um, and how and what are the things that you've been learning in the process? Uh, quite a bit. Um, I think to identify emerging opportunities, you really have to have a holistic view about what's happening around the region that you have an operation in. Talking to people, particularly talking to your peers, because we have quite a bit of um, conversation between CEOs across the banks. And as a matter of fact, it is not only the Asian banks, but also the European banks. We have a network of which I'm a member called the International Monetary Conference, which is made up of 60 CEOs around the world and we meet once a year. So that's a very good venue. And in the discussion, we don't, we don't talk about things about how good each bank is, but we actually talk about what are the emerging things that we should be mindful of. So it is always in my mind. So when we look at uh, what we have done in the past, um, sustainability finance, we have built up a very good portfolio. Um, we have set out to do a $10 billion portfolio uh, by 2022. We achieved that in 2020. So we now set up a sustainability uh, finance target of to build $25 billion portfolio by year 2025. And I'm pretty sure that we will also exceed that pretty quickly. That's a new area that we were not engaged in. We plow in resources to understand what they are, what does it mean, and what does it mean from a financial perspective, and what does it mean from risk perspective, and what does it mean for the well-being of the community perspective. And we build up very well. So that's a new area that we were in. Digital transformation is something that actually we hopped on very early on. And when we talk about digital, many people talk about what are the features you can access for your phone. It's much more than that. It's the front line, it's the middle office, it's the back office. And what is it that we need to do to make sure that the transformation is complete so that it is something that we can build and we can support processing, we can support customer reporting, we can support unearthing of additional information through data analytics from our own uh, client project, what is the next best action that we can do for our customers? So a, a lot of things. So we have spent quite a bit of effort um, at my level with my direct reports, with my people in the technology area to find areas that we can work. And those areas are not only feature oriented, those areas are really fundamentally oriented. Now, in a way, we are happy with the COVID uh, event. Uh, the, oh, perhaps the only thing that we can say we're happy about the COVID event is that it forces the people into an alternative channel which is the digital channel. And once they're on it, they find that it is actually not that difficult to, to master and they stick onto it. Now to us, it's very important because we made so much investments in the past and they have been underutilized. Once they start to utilize it, I'm able to do the straight through processing that is already linked through the origination to the back office. So reduce quite a bit of cost uh, as a result of that. And the errors that we sometimes will make if it's manually oriented, the four eyes check that we otherwise would have to do, all these got eliminated. So that is very important. So digital, digitalization and finding the gap as to what we need to do is very important. Finding new opportunities, but so for example, sustainable financing is very important. Finding new growth markets is also very important. So Myanmar is a growth market that we have identified. Uh, it is currently under a bit of a of a, of a unrest and uh, there's, a, there's a bit of an uncertainty as to where it is heading. But if you step back and look at the medium and long-term, I think that country has got a lot of potential. Um, its people are young, its educational standards is quite acceptable, it's a resource rich country. And there are a lot of um, um, opportunities that our network customers want to go in there to build. So we are, we are building that into a Indo-China hub for us. We currently have a greater China hub, we have a Southeast Asian hub, which is Singapore-based, and we try to see what else we can do in the Indochina. So we think about it holistically by looking at the macro trends, and then we decide what is it that we can do. So this Greater China push was not only because of China's growth, it's actually by looking at the mega trends, the wealth accumulation in China, China's driving of economic activities, their consumer market being maturing into a middle-class market gradually over time, their push for local consumption, all of these factors come into play when we decide what we want to do. And with that fundamental understanding, then we look at each of the opportunities um, in, the, in the micro basis. But you start off by macro first, see what is the development, what you need to do. The purpose of this interview is Samuel said, the man, okay? Now, 
let's revisit all these things uh, in terms of you, the person, um, how you manage your priorities. You know, I'm trying to get a mental map of your day or of your week. And maybe the more direct question is, is this, that uh, your wife and your daughter, I think, uh, live in Hong Kong. Um, you know, uh, of all the pressures that, that you have in, in, in your working day, um, you know, uh, how do you prioritize what's important? Um, you know, and don't give me the answers as to what the bank is working on. Give me the answers of your day. Um, and out of that priorities, out of those priorities, maybe the test question is this. Would you recommend to your daughter to work in the banking industry? <laughs> um, first of all, although the answer earlier on seemed to indicate it's an OCBC answer, but I want to add on to it that I derive satisfaction, a personal satisfaction, a sense of accomplishment together with my team that I'm able to do uh, the things that I'm able to deliver to my shareholders. So it is not solely looking from a work perspective. It is also looking at from my own perspective. Now, some of you or the audience may know that I work very long hours and I do not play golf and I do not drink wine. So the next question therefore is, are you totally stressed out or are you able to handle the stress? I feel that I'm able to handle the so-called quote-unquote stress quite well. So I also try to understand myself, why is it that some people by looking at your living, at your life pattern, the work that you do, the hours that you spend, did not result in what people would typically call a stressed out person. I think I've got one personal trait which I like very much, but it was just born in me. When I do something, I'm totally involved in that thing. So in this conversation, Emmanuel, I'm totally involved in this conversation. Other thoughts do not come into play, such as what I'm going to do, there is a client meeting that's happening, or there's an internal meeting that's happening. Actually, no, I'm totally devoted to that. So once this uh, session is over, I will be totally devoted to the next work task that I need to work on or an internal brainstorming that I should need to work on. That I think mentally helps me quite a bit because the way to de-stress is that people want to do from one activity to the other. So people work and then people play golf or people drink or people go uh, to, the, to the beach in order to enjoy themselves. If you look at it, it's actually a change in activity. I am able to change an activity perhaps within the confine of what people say. It is still work-related, but if you look at it in segments, this work that I currently do, vis-a-vis -vis the work that I would do over the next one and a half hours, will be totally different. And therefore, my mind got released from the first task and move on to the second task. I think that helps me quite a bit. I, I am not sure if everybody agrees with me, but to me, how can I explain that I don't think I am under so much stress as people traditionally defined it. That's my answer to that. Um, but you, you never know whether it's a real answer or not until your body- And then, and then the question and then the question to ask is, so what do you do for leisure? I actually um, will try to understand what's happening in areas that has got nothing to do with work, but it is still work originated. For example, I'll be fascinated to talk about how long would a rubber tree be able to produce rubber for a yeah. palm oil palm for a palm to mature? And what does it mean by deforestation? Um, is burning the only way? And why is the why do they need to burn in order to do it? Because it's hundred times cheaper to burn than to employ the people to cut it. So I find those type of facts, which is partially work related but I look at it as personal interest related. So I also try to have my thought move into those areas, which I think help me to de-stress. And I use that as quote unquote leisure. So when I ask you, what, what advice would you give your daughter as to whether or not she should be in financial services or in banking? I'm actually asking you a loaded question. I'm, I'm asking you about your sense of what do you think the future of the industry is gonna look like? Is this worth it? Um, you know, where the money is or should people be doing things that they are interested in? 
what has your advice been to your, your, to your own children or to people, um, you know, uh, to the next generation? Well, first of all, my, my daughter studied marketing. So she's not a finance uh, person. So it is unlikely that she would join the finance field. She's in product promotion and she's been very successful in that. Um, my view about the financial services industry is that it is the industry that allows you to understand a lot of, a lot of things that's happening in the market, in the operating environment that you're in. You know, in Chinese, we have something we call the banking industry is the dragon head industry because all other industries have got some relationship with banking. And if you work in the banking industry, your knowledge about what's happening in the, in the, in the world that you live in, I believe is much more than if you work in other industries. So from that respect, I would still recommend and encourage people to be involved in banking because this can give you a broad view about what's happening and you can put the things into context. What were the crises that you've had in the time that you was, were chief executive? I think that um, you know, the, the point you raised about franchise and in Singapore, um, OCBC having a very domestic and very um, close franchise uh, with the business community, uh, you cannot but help but be close to some of the business leaders, the business personalities in Singapore. And, and it's sometimes difficult to draw a line between friendship and, uh, and where business starts. Uh, and you have to make uh, difficult decisions. Uh, talk to us about some of the difficult decisions that you've had to make. No, I think in that respect, there has not been um, difficult decisions, so to speak, um, because the people that we are close with, um, even though there is a professional relationship, there could be a personal relationship, but they don't really interact that much. Um, so I have never, I can never, I cannot recall a particular incident where I have to make a, a judgment call and whether one relationship will influence uh, the other. So I, I, I don't think that actually comes into play. I think the most difficult period uh, that uh, I have been through uh, was still during the Asian financial crisis. I don't know whether you caught some of the comments that I made to the press that even at the onset of the COVID crisis, um, I said my assessment is that this COVID crisis is going to be very penetrating. It's going to be worse than the global financial crisis that we went through. It's going to be equal to or even slightly more severe than the SARS crisis. But I don't think it will be as bad as what we had experienced in Asia during the Asian financial crisis. So I think coming back to your question, the most difficult time that um, I can recall um, in my working career is during the Asian financial crisis time, because that was the time that we are fundamentally weak and there are parties who take advantage of our weakness to make it even weaker than it, that it had to be. So that was the time that we are very concerned. And that also teaches me a good lesson that the liquidity uh, for a bank is very important. Now I was working um, at Bank America at the time. So Bank America is a global bank, very reputable. So there is no um, real liquidity issues. But when you talk about local currency liquidity, you always have to master it. So I had the, the experience of the liquidity being dried up very quickly. And I have to get liquidity from the market at a fairly expensive price. So you learn from that. So we are the one of the first ones to come up with the largest, at that time we call it FRCD program uh, in Hong Kong um, to support our liquidity. Uh, during that time, we also sold off some mortgages into special purpose vehicles uh, to raise money from the, uh, off, from the offshore markets to do that. So you, you, you quickly understand what you're faced with, and then you will work on it to make sure that if it were to hit again, you will not be impacted. So learn the lesson early, understand what is it that caused it? Is it true that you are not well prepared? And if you are not well prepared, what is it that you can do to well prepare yourself for the next one? It's very important. And I think in that respect, during the Asian financial crisis time, we were hit early on. So in a way, it's a blessing in disguise. We were hit early on, and we were never in danger of, of, a, of a bankruptcy or something because part of a large bank, we were never with that. But you, you really have to say that this is something that 
you could you avoid? If you want to avoid it next time, what do you do? We are well prepared for that. If you look at our financials at the time, it was on the Bank of America Asia. Um, it's, a, it's a licensed bank, so we publish our results. During the financial crisis time in Hong Kong, Bank of America Asia was the only bank that was able to report a 2% rise in profit during the Asian financial crisis that all other banks reported significantly reduced earnings because we prepare early. At this time, OCBC is in the opposite situation where the banking industry is coming out stronger than the rest of the you know, community, society, and so on. Um, is there now a reverse role where governments, and in fact, in Singapore, uh, the Singapore government uh, is putting expectations on the banks uh, to absorb, um, you know, uh, employment and absorb, uh, you know, uh, cash flow situations and so on. Uh, and is that role reversed now? And from a position of strength, uh, what are some of the priorities or some of the issues that you're facing right now? I think it is reasonable for uh, the banks, uh, which are major corporations in the local economy, uh, to provide um, support to the community. So I'm not only saying that the support uh, in terms of granting relief or moratoriums to our customers. Um, during last year, we also created over 3,000 job opportunities um, for people outside the bank to work uh, for the bank. Now, our insurance subsidiary, Great Eastern, uh, created quite a bit of uh, insurance agency jobs uh, for the people to join the insurance industry. We took advantage of the Singapore um, United Traineeship Program to offer opportunities for people to understand what banking is um, with subsidy from the government, but we still have to devote the resources to it. I think it's reasonable for us as a major corporation in the community to help the community in case of need. Let me ask you another loaded question and only because of time we go straight into you know, uh, a very deep issue. Why didn't you become Singaporean? And you can answer this question in many different ways because there are a number of issues uh, around this. Just that question. I like Singapore. It's a, it's a country that I've spent 14 years in. As a matter of fact, prior to coming to Singapore, I was 15 years in Hong Kong. So it's almost matching the last 15 years. It's 14 years in Singapore. And I'm pretty sure that I will probably spend um, a disproportionate amount of time continue to be in Singapore. Because here's the place for the past 14 years, I've known the place very well. I've known the people very well. I like the culture. I like the way that they interacted with me. And I'm very pleased that I, I have generally speaking been accepted uh, by Singapore as, as one of them. So to me, it, it doesn't really matter whether you are a, a, a Singapore citizen or a Singapore permanent resident. Um, I like the country and I will continue to be spending enormous amount of time in this country, interacting with the local people, um, making sure that I'm able to continue to be not only remembered, but I derive satisfaction from being part of Singapore. What did you make of um, all the discussions that were going on in the local community uh, about uh, you know, having Singaporeans lead a Singapore bank? And you are very clearly sticking out um, as one of the CEOs who are not Singaporean and you sort of needed to be quiet uh, because they were talking about you uh, and, you know, other CEOs who, who are, you know, either technically not Singaporean or, or became Singaporean eventually. This whole, this whole, and it's not just in Singapore. I think that uh, in many countries today, uh, in Indonesia uh, and, and so on, uh, you know, having a local person is very important uh, as a matter of identity, uh, assertion of self, you know, confidence as well as uh, opportunity of leadership, right? Um, you know, what did you, uh, what was, what were your, what, what were the thoughts that went through your mind uh, as you listened to some of these things? Uh, and what were your contributions to that discussion? Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm leaving it as open-ended as possible because sure, obviously sure. this topic can be discussed in any way. Sure. Now, first of all, I can understand um, the comments made by um, many of the people. And I think it is very logical uh, for them to have that feeling. Um, I would look at it um, from a different perspective. Um, I think we should have uh, resources to contribute to Singapore, contribute to Singapore's economy, contribute to the well-being of the people. Um, where they originally come from is just the statistical information. What they were doing, what they are able to do, 
I think it's the most important consideration for the for the country. And from that perspective, uh, for myself, who was not originally from Singapore, but I'm now in Singapore um, uh, doing the things that I'm currently doing, I sincerely um, trust that I would like to create additional incremental value for Singapore in order for the well-being of the country and the well-being of the people. I think we should look at it that way. Where they were originally from is a relevant statistical information, but whether they are able to um, contribute and to give support uh, to the local economy as they continue to prosper is something more relevant. So I would look at it that way. But it is very important for us to adopt an understanding attitude. Um, I think I, I truly understand uh, where um, uh, and why these comments come from. But if you look at it from a different perspective, it is not where you come from. It is what you do. And are you able to help Singapore grow? Singapore have a, even a higher reputation in the international community. To bring activities into Singapore is more relevant. If you look at, again, back to OCBC Bank, um, we find every opportunity to bring activities into Singapore. Look at the trade that we do. Many of the trades do not have got nothing to do with Singapore, except that we bring them in under the Global Traders Program by the customers and we process them over here. Wealth management. Again, the wealth management uh, business that we do, many of the customers are actually outside of Singapore, but we only create a booking center in Singapore. We extend our research and our product support and our advice from Singapore in order to create employment for Singapore. It is more important for us to make sure that the activities are created for Singapore um, so that everybody can benefit um, here rather than looking at the statistical information as to where they come from. But you still don't understand, answer the question. Uh, did it ever strike, strike you to become Singaporean, uh, to change your passport? Um, you know, uh, and if you didn't, uh, how do you think through that? Um, it, it was not something that I um, focus on um, because I am able to have a, um, a passport that allows me to travel. Um, and this can accomplish my mission of making sure that I'm able to do the things um, as good as I can and to help to bring activities into Singapore. So I was looking at it that way uh, rather than distinguishing it a particular document as to where it was issued. Mm. Um, two questions here. Uh, what was your relationship with the board? Um, and I asked this question, um, you know, when I track the evolution of the OCBC board, um, it, it, it evolved over time from being very family centric uh, to becoming a little bit more professional. And you can identify members of the board who, who kept a watching brief, uh, you know, on behalf of the family. And today it's a lot more uh, open ended uh, in that the board members are individuals, um, you know, who more or less could have their own, um, their own opinions. Um, and it's also good to see that the board is beginning to look a little more, more diverse. It's not, you know, Chinese men in a, you know, on a list. Um, so that's good. Um, now, the thing is, um, to what extent did the board allow you to do the things that you could do? Uh, did you, uh, were there things that the board said no to you? Uh, how, was, how was your relationship with the board? Very good. First of all, uh, the, the organization is professionally run. It's truly professionally run. Um, although we have uh, uh, major shareholders, but uh, the major shareholder leave it to management to run the bank and the board also provide guidance, but do not directly um, interfere with the management's actions. Of course, all of the material actions, uh, expansion plans, acquisitions, are going to new line of business, we will clear the board. And that's beneficial because the board has got people who are not involved in banking and they will be able to provide us with the input that is necessary for us to put all decisions into a broader context. And from that angle, it actually helps us to make sure that whatever we do is done on a proper and larger context, rather than focusing on perhaps sometimes management may feel that this is something that I'll be able to get some incremental earnings on. But then we have to look at it from a resource allocation perspective. Is it worth it? 
we will make the best judgment. And with the additional input from the board, it can actually supplement that judgment into an even better judgment. So the relationship with the board has always been good. We have good interactions with the board. The board members are very diversified. They are professionals uh, with good knowledge and reputation in their own field. And we interacted, interacted with them uh, very well. The organization um, is very professionally run. It is no longer, uh, not at all, a family uh, entity at all. Right. Uh, were there things that the board didn't allow you to do? Um, I think there are different opinions um, that were expressed by the board members. Ultimately, we always come to a consensus at this, what is good for the organization. So I cannot think of anything that we think should be done, and it's not done simply because of the board. If there are things that we ultimately did not do, it was a decision that was made by the management with the input from the board as to what is necessary to, uh, to what, what, what should be done and what, what may, should actually be withheld. How involved were you in, in the succession planning in the bank? I think I, um, I've actually tested this question with you several times in the past, like, you know, when, how long will you stay and, you know, and who you might be grooming um, and, and from internal, right? And, and how did it result in Helen Wong being appointed, uh, you know, the next chief executive? Uh, you know, here, here again, a loaded question, which is, what is the talent pool in OCBC? Um, you know, weren't you involved in the, in the succession process? Uh, not just now, but, you know, from, from long time ago, and how did it end up with Helen Wong being uh, selected? Yes, well, the decision is made by the nominating committee and approved by the board. Um, did you make was, your recommendations? Did you, did, you, did you give recommendations yourself? I was, I was involved in the process and uh, I provide my input as to what I think are the necessary uh, ingredients of a, of a CEO for the bank going forward. Um, there are uh, candidates internally and externally and uh, each one of them have their strength and we really have to look at what the bank is likely to be going forward in order to choose the, the, the right candidate. And for those candidates that we ultimately did not choose, they are still very good. They're still very important for the organization or for that matter, for the external candidates that we did not choose, they're still very important for the economy. But we have to look at it in the OCBC context and what is it that we need to have in order to guide us to the next phase of growth. And from that perspective, um, I think the nominating committee made the decision and it was approved by the board that talent be appointed the successor to myself. Were you a part of the nomination committee? Uh, was Helen one of the people that you had recommended? Um, I am not on the nominating committee. Nominating committee are made up of all independent uh, directors. So I'm not on the nominating committee. I provided my input to the nominating committee and the nominating committee made their own decision. Um, I was involved in the um, uh, candidates review as well, but I was not the uh, proving party, nor am I the party that uh, voted on the candidates. It was a nominating committee uh, decision. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a curious point because, uh, you know, this is, this is a time when Singaporeans, uh, you know, were hoping that there would be a Singaporean who would be a CEO. Uh, and on top of that, um, you know, uh, um, you know, the choice of Helen Wong, the skills that she brings in uh, and her, leg her own legacy, um, you know, and, uh, and the choices that you have internally in the organization. There are many questions that I didn't ask you, like how, what is your working relationship with your staff? Uh, in fact, I, I had a lot of comments coming back from your staff saying that, uh, you are the man who would uh, buy food for the security guards, uh, if, you know, when, uh, when you came in late at night, uh, and and so on. There are many good stories, and I and and uh, and there are stories that have come from over the years. So um, the the genuineness of your personality and character just stands out very very clearly, uh, and it's for those reasons that. Uh, I'm taking all your answers at face value because um, you know you've uh, you've genuinely uh, been exactly who you said you were, and uh, your point about being present uh, is very interesting because you're always present with me, and and uh, you're also present with the people uh, that you've worked with. Um, talk to us. Uh, there's a few questions here on technology. Um, you know, what is your sense of uh, what technology is doing to the bank? Um, 
Now, what I've been, uh, I'm here in Beijing and, and uh, you know, the technology is everything. It's, it's uh, tearing apart uh, the banking industry in China and, you know, it's amazing uh, what's happening. And um, what I thought uh, was very interesting about uh, technology in Singapore and, and looking back into Singapore and, and seeing how the three banks had uh, imbibed technology, uh, now it begins to make sense to me that uh, the banks, especially OCBC, UOB, and also DBS, uh, used to be uh, buyers of technology. Your, procure, your, your chief technology officer was mostly a procurement officer who just signed off in an IBM deal, and then IBM would go off to India and, and get it done and so on. And today, uh, you, have to, uh, you have to absorb technology. You need to have talent internally. Uh, and then you start seeing that the organization itself changes as a whole. Uh, many of your employees now have to be technology savvy uh, internally, and you have to do your production in-house as opposed to you know, buying it and so on. Uh, talk to us a little bit, because there are a number of technology questions coming through right now, and I'm trying to consolidate them. Um, talk to us about what you've learned about how technology is changing the financial institution today, and, uh, and what you've been learning, and, and what you think are uh, you know, things that a CEO should, uh, should uh, pay attention to. I think one of the guiding principles that uh, I laid down with my management team, with the support of the whole management team, is that we digitalize the processes, we do not digitalize the customer. The customer still needs to be understood, not only from a data perspective, but also understood from its desire perspective. That's why the life goal comment that I just made, the growing the total relationship to lead the customer to understand what is it that they should shoot for and how do we prepare for that becomes important. The most important thing is we cannot digitalize a customer relationship. We can use all of the digital tools that we have to understand the customer, but ultimately when you deal with the customer, you cannot digitalize that relationship. It is not a transactional relationship because if you focus on a transactional relationship, the commercial banks may lose out because there will always be some fintech companies who is able to do a better job in that monoline activity with the customer. But the customer do not look at it as a monoline relationship when they deal with the bank. They have that trust in the bank, which we need to preserve. And it is that trust that we need to build upon so that we have a total relationship. Given that, we still have to make sure that we invest into uh, digitalization because that creates the better experience and the convenience. But that is not the fundamental driver of the relationship. Fundamental driver of the relationship is your understanding, your care, your service, and the ability to lead the customer to its next goal. When I look at technology, as I mentioned earlier, we should not focus on what people perceive as the front line. We have to look at the back end, and you have to make sure that the technology is done in such a way that is able to build an organization which is a more complete organization than before. In that sense, your ability to unearth all of the information that you have about the customer must be put there for a purpose. And the purpose in our case for consumer is to build a total trusting relationship. And for a commercial customer is to make sure that they understand what is the next requirement that they have. It is not a, 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 a solution that you can buy from the market. It is a solution that you have to bring it inside yourself in order to understand what you need to reinforce what you have with the customer. So I think nowadays uh, people look at digitalization as, as, as an end. You have to understand digitalization is a means. The end is to reinforce that trust that the customer has in you, you understand in them, and the two of you can come together to define what is ultimately required by the customer. Um, so that's very important. Our investments, we always say whenever we do investments, it has to be discerning investment. It has to be investment with an ultimate purpose. What is the purpose? The purpose is not that I want to digitalize. The person is that what is it that comes along after the digitalization? And sometimes I felt is lost that we wanted to create this feature because we're the first in the market but the feature must be accepted by the customers 
as a convenient feature that they will use? What is the better experience that they were able to realize? What is the convenience that they were able to achieve? What is the time efficiency? And is that important? So put it in the broader context of digitalization. But my opening comment is very important. We digitalize our processes, our procedures. We don't digitalize our customer because the relationship is much more beyond the transactional relationship of which the customer wish to complete the transaction with you. The customer wants to build upon that transaction that they completed with you to do all the things that he can do with you in the future. Final, final question. I mean, this conversation really could go further and longer. We could go on to two hours uh, and we could go deeper as well. And in fact, on every single point that you brought up, uh, could have gone a lot deeper. And I hope that it gives an introductory idea uh, to those following you for the first time to get a sense of who you are. Uh, final question uh, is, uh, you know, why are you leaving now? And uh, what are you going to do after you leave? Uh, you know, you've got 14 days of quarantine if you go back to Hong Kong, by the way. Or is it 21 days now? Uh, you know, so uh, uh, why today? Why now? Why not wait until the pandemic is over? Uh, and uh, what what are you uh, going to be doing uh, after after you leave, after you step down? Well, first of all, I have um, been serving this role for nine years, and I think it is always good to have a leadership refreshment and a leadership renewal. Um, there will be new ideas that will be able to come from Helen as my successor, and uh, the chemistry between Helen and her colleagues will also create new opportunities that maybe we have not focused on before. So I think serving nine years is a good time to um, relinquish it and to allow a new person to come in. Um, secondly, um, I'm also becoming more aged. And as a result of that, I would also want to make sure that I'll be able to um, do other things that I am not able to do because of the direct work that needs to be involved in. You will then, next question is that, what is it you want to do afterwards? Um, afterwards, first of all, I want to regain control over my time. Um, as the CEO, you would have thought that I have absolute control over my time as to what you want to do when you want to hold a meeting. As a matter of fact, as the CEO, there are so many things that is already occupied in your role that your ability to manage the time is actually not that much. And I would like to be able to manage my own time after I exit from this current role. And then with the management of my own time, I will be able to identify what are the things that will continue to energize me so that I will not be like a person who was totally um, disengaged from the community. I still want to be engaged with the community because you derive satisfaction and you derive energy from those roles. So I'm looking forward to, after I've been exited, I have left this role, I will be able to find the time and then I'll be able to sit down and decide what I really would do that will continue to propel me. Uh, let you have the last word on that and let you and leave you uh, with your own words there. But I'll say this, that in preparing for this interview and this conversation with you, uh, it is always my job to make sure that we've covered all ground and, uh, and that, you know, there are no surprises that, uh, that might come on after the interview or after the conversation uh, that, uh, that might come out and, and, uh, and haunt us. Uh, and I must say that uh, the, the feedback and the, the, the respect that you have in the community uh, is amazing. Uh, and Angelo Dandi said this about Muhammad Ali, and I'll say this about you. Uh, and, and as a parting word, and as well as a, um, you know, as a, as a form of respect, that you are who you said you are. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Emmanuel. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.